Welcome to The Voice of Retail. I'm your host, Michael LeBlanc. This podcast is brought to you in conjunction with Retail Council of Canada. If you're a frequent listener subscriber to the podcast, you'll know how often I ask guests, what's next, to wrap the episode. Well, in this interview with Sarah Owen, Global Futures Director, Soon Future Studies, what's next is the episode. After reaching Sarah in her new home base in one of my favorite global cities, Lisbon, we talk about the tradecraft of predicting future trends, dive into Sarah's new report, The Soon Future Forecast, we unpack critical observations and trends that happen, or will happen, both pre- and post-COVID pandemic, and provide a glimpse into the future that retailers need to hear. I think we've all been very focused, and, and rightly so, on the e-commerce uh, revolution this year. But in 2024, there will be quite a, a strong resurgence to physical retail. And in terms of what that looks like, it's when we think, we have to think about it in its um, embeddedness to other trends and drivers of change. So one of that, frankly, is off the back of what the future city looks like. Let's listen in now. Sarah, welcome to the Voice of Retail podcast. How are you doing? Hi, Michael. Great to be here. Thanks for having me. I'm doing well. Well, fantastic. You're you're currently in one of my favorite countries in the whole wide world, Portugal. So that and congratulations, I guess I should say Lisbon or Lisboa, as they would know, is, is such a wonderful city. Yeah, it was a nice transition after a decade in New York City, leaving the rat race just to have a bit more, you know, lifestyle, beach, yeah. good weather, things like that. Well, that's a heck of a transition from uh, from NYC to Lisbon. That's amazing. <laughs> um, been there many times myself, so uh, I'm I'm envious right off the top. Well, listen, let's jump right in. Tell us about yourself, who you are, your personal professional journey, and what you do at Soon. Sure, I'll start um, high level. So for now, I'm the Global Futures Director of a company called Soon Future Studies, and we're a company that is set up to track. Future trends three to five years in advance. We still do real time to kind of two years out, but there was a sweet spot uh, for companies, retailers, institutions, policymakers looking for what the future looks like a little bit further out of their kind of current KPIs or roadmap. So we created a methodology to kind of look a bit further ahead. So that's what I'm currently doing at Soon. And my background is a mix of trend forecasting, futurism, and sociology. Wow. So, so did you always grow up thinking of the future or is this this intersection of a bunch of different curiosities or passions of you in your life? Yeah, that's a good question. I wouldn't say I even knew what it was when I was younger, but naturally I think that curiosity and inquisitiveness was always there. And I actually, when I went back to Australia a couple of years ago, went through my old stuff and found a notebook that I had when I was 12 or 13 where I was scrapbooking together all these visuals mm. of New York City. So I thought that was quite funny. I forgot about that, that the fact that this young teenage girl in Outback Australia was already manifesting before she knew what it was. So mm. there was something to the imagining the future in, in a certain realm, even if they didn't have a, a methodology behind it at that stage. And who knew you could make a career out of out of doing thinking about the future and, and mm. prog- prognosticating, right? Right. On. Yeah. Um, and I, I mean, I, I first learned about official trend forecasting when I was in college. And I remember mm. studying my first year, I was 17 or 18 in um, Queensland at the University of Technology. And we had access to a subscription platform called WGSN. And so as you know, a young student, 
having a deep dive into a subscription service like that that generally costs, you know, upwards of quite a few thousand dollars yeah. um, was really a privilege into a world of amazing insights and futures thinking that you didn't really understand had such relevance mm. at that time. Mm. Um, so I kind of got my first taste tester of what trends and what trends are and not only the fact that they exist, but there's a team of amazing creative people behind the scenes that are really driving every industry that we touch and engage with. Well, tell me a bit more about uh, Soon. Or is, is it Soon or Soon Futures? What's the proper name? Uh, we, go by, we go by Soon Future Studies, but a lot of people shorten it to Soon. Well, tell me about the organization's scope and scale, how many people work there. You're, you're currently in, uh, in Portugal. You just came from New York City. Is it a global firm? Tell, just tell, me, tell us all about that. Yeah, we're headquartered in Melbourne, Australia, actually, um, but we're a global team. So we're about six of us um, on board full time. And then we have uh, a network of what we call our futures advisors. Mm. So they're specific, you know, experts, whether it's in cryptocurrency or anthropology or sustainability around the world in emerging markets and also kind of top tier cities that are feeding in signals and insights to us mm. on a daily. So we we can't do our research, especially during COVID, without that kind of global yeah. and local intel. And so that network is, is kind of some of the secret source to a certain degree as well. Well, it's almost a future-based organization when you describe it. I mean, you've got a core group of people, but then you've got uh, many distributed thought leaders around the world who feed in points of presence information. That's a really interesting model. Did it, did it start that way or did it evolve to that? It really came um, after me realizing we didn't, at my previous roles and my previous experience mm-hmm. um, in the trend forecasting space, not feeling like that network was um, distributed or organized in a way that was easy to access information quickly. Like there was no structure to it. And so it was really important for me when building soon that we created this network that felt like a mini organism that could evolve and grow and and um, operate. Uh, and right now we're looking at how do we transition something like um, a web 1.0 or web 2.0 community and network into web three. And, and what does that look like in, in form of the decentralized web? So, can we create a DAO, a decentralized autonomous organization with our futures advisors and, and really um, create, you know, governance and sovereignty and transparency and ownership around um, some of this knowledge sharing as well. So that's kind of the, the moonshot goal for next year is, is looking how we transition into that realm as well. And, and just to stick on that uh, thread for a bit, how do you find these people? Do they find you and, and you know, do you, do you track them in media and other ventures is social media or online like how do you how does people is it a hands-up strategy or you you tap people on the shoulder how do you how do you go about it yeah there's no necessary necessary methodology to how we find people i would say that futures advisors are people that we kind of vet and know that they're a thought leader in the space that's really important to know that that level of expertise is there so they they come through you know like you, for example, we might go to a specific conference and see a speaker and think, oh, they would be really great to work on a certain project. Mm-hmm. Um, or we might be scrolling through TikTok and find a young Gen Z guy that has really in- interesting ideas around foraging fungi in in the forest. You know, so it, there's really no scope <laughs> right. and scale to 
who can be qualified as an expert because at the end of the day, human insights are mm. innately that they're humans and we all are. So there's no, it's very democratic in that sense, but mm. futures advisors, um, the, the people feeding in insights and signals to us, but we also have what we call the soon circle and the soon circle are people publications, academic journals, conferences, networks, collectives, any any kind of medium or format that we map on a circle to work out who is on the fringe and who we need to track and monitor. Mm. So there'll be, you know, up-and-coming conferences like I Am Weekend in Barcelona that really talks about the new internet and what that looks like, or there could be, um, you know, a new journal or academic article coming from a publication um, within the you know psychology realm, so we we right. map these references on our soon circle because mm. to study and track the future, you have to understand the signals of change in today, and yeah. by doing that, you really have to only look at the fringe to see what kind of things are transforming societies, subcultures, and sectors essentially. Right. I guess I guess it's hard to define a zeitgeist, but you know one when you see one, so to speak. Yeah, right? it's like defining culture or yeah. charisma. Or I was once on this documentary where, where they wanted me to define like what cool was, and I was like, cool is such a hard <laughs> thing to define because a lot of my previous um, yeah. job required me to study millennials and Gen Z aesthetically and kind of deconstruct their their consumption choices, and so. Mm you would start to really pick up this pattern recognition of what made someone really cool and stylistic and would want to take their photo and document that and interrogate it. And, um, yeah, they asked me, okay, so how do you know who's cool and what is, what is cool? I'm like, this is a very existential question. Yeah. Is, um, is it is it now in the modern world, is it is it Instagram followers? Are there actual – like before, no. I think – No. Because I, I think 10 years ago, finding these people – and then having some kind of signal that they were influential in some way, mm. shape, or form was a bit more difficult, wasn't it? Like, can't yeah. you say, listen, you got a, a thousand million people following you on Instagram. You must be doing something right. It's, but you don't were, think that. You're, you're, I mean, there, like was you an, there was an era of that, absolutely. Mm. I mean, I think what – I mean, Tumblr really set up this idea of aesthetic culture and fandom and – and creating visual feeds. But when it migrated to Instagram and actually became more about social signaling, like how do I right. share my status or, or my raise social, my status, right? Yeah, or it became about these metrics like followers, likes, and engagement. Um, but th- that kind of evolved and, and also died out fairly quickly to, to where at mm. the moment those metrics are actually losing traction, even with the changes Instagram makes in terms of hiding likes. Hmm. Also coming off the back of the mental health crisis and Gen Z, you know, posting a photo only to realize that it might get five likes, feeling really bad about themselves and deleting it. So that kind of, there's a twofold reason to why likes and followers don't really um, matter as much. But um, I I think it's more about the virality of the message that resonates more. And that's why TikTok's really interesting to kind of study as a platform over Instagram. Tell me, tell me more about that. So I, I love watching TikTok, just hmm. both professionally and and uh, personally. <laughs> I think their 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 algorithms are pretty brilliant. Um, but but I know a lot of retailers I talk to are just trying to figure it out. What? Why do you like uh, TikTok so much? I wouldn't say I like TikTok so much because I think personally I'm also a bit cautious of the algorithm for the fact that it creates, you know, filter bubbles that sometimes yeah. keep us in our echo own chamber echo kind of chambers. Yeah. Exactly. And that I think when you're young and you don't have that outlook to, to 
cross-check biases and things like that, it can be really um, damaging to someone that's in those formative years and building identity and things like that. But um, that aside, I think TikTok's fascinating because it allows someone to spread their message at a really fast pace if it resonates quickly, whereas on Instagram you can't get that sort of reach until you've built up that following. So firstly, by its nature, it democratises not just fandom or stardom because it's not about that, but the message. So someone can have a really mm-hmm. compelling um, TikTok, you know, video composition, um, whether it's just about an aesthetic trend or whether it's about, like I was saying, foraging fungi in the yeah, in yeah. forest and, and yeah. it can share and be a powerful vehicle for not just entertainment because a lot of people use it for that, but mm. it's more there's interest in education and I would say that education is becoming a new social signaling tool that people mm. want to acquire all of this information and knowledge so they can then regurgitate that to signal um, how informed they are. So there's definitely a big educational component of TikTok that Instagram just doesn't have uh, or cultivate even how. Right. Interesting. Well, let's talk about the tradecraft for forecasting. I mean, I came to know forecasting in the in the OG, the Faith Popcorn <laughs> era, if you remember yes. Faith Popcorn as, as a forecaster. And, and, of course, the COVID era has taught us many things, one of which is uh, forecasting the future can be notoriously tricky. Talk about the you know, you've already got into basically some of the tradecraft, but how do you how do you understand together what is a trend, uh, what is the future, and what is just a an accommodation or an adaptation to an unusual time? I mean, you must be you must be thinking about that during these past eighteen months and and its impact on on the future and what is and isn't important when you think of the future. So, walk me a bit through that that tradecraft element. Yeah, so there's two ways you can really approach futures work. The first way is if you follow a a methodology called a futures funnel or a futures cone, and the idea is that you look at a top-down approach. So what are the megatrends or the macro trends that are essentially macro-environmental drivers of change that are impacting our lives, but it's such a high level that how do I say this? You can't really extract tangible trends from them straight away. So take, for example, um, one of our drivers of change for the next decade is weakening global institutions. So, you know, we know trust in institutions is waning and coming off the back of living in a post-trust society, what we see is that that at a high level um, is, yes, sounds very governmental and institutional, but this is actually, if you start to map that macro trend down to micro trends, you see that is potentially why something like the blockchain and cryptocurrency has so much resonance in this era, because the blockchain, again, democratizes access to governance, ownership. It allows for financial sovereignty. It allows for traceability and trust. So again, these these two are interconnected, even though one is a macro or megatrend and one is more of a micro trend. So um, our process always takes the top-down approach, but we also go bottom-up. So it's really important to be tracking, like I was saying, that fringe, what is happening in culture and society that is on the fringe uh, that can't necessarily be quantified easily, is sometimes very anecdotal, is sometimes a signal of change that doesn't really make sense without context. But we use a data bank where we tag a lot of these signals with um, a different taxonomy system so we can mm. start to contextualize what does emerging attitudes in China related to sustainability 
through the eyes of Gen Z look like? So we can get really granular once we start to collect all this data. And what we like to do is then map it to our megatrends so we see if it fits into things like demographic polarization or growing wealth inequality, the mental health crisis, you know, knowledge society. There's always these set of megatrends that will define the next three to sometimes 30, sometimes 50 years. So these megatrends don't really change too much. They are kind of the driving forces that change the world. But at the same time, you can't just look from the top down. You have to look um, at the fringes to see what's bubbling up. Hmm. All right. Well, let's get into the future forecast 2024. Let's talk about this this report. And, and you know, I'm scanning through and I've scanned through the website. I see lots of interesting things. What made some made me laugh? The IRL anxiety and real life anxiety. <laughs> uh, I love the AI art because you got a picture of uh, Rembrandt's The Night Watch, which is one of my favorite paintings. This just just so, is is a ton of things in here that are so interesting. But hit the highlights for us. Hit what these these kind of key categories are and and what's in the report. So essentially what we did when we mapped our future forecast for 2024 is we started to scenario plan a world really post-COVID. So I know we're emerging out of that stage now, but there's mm-hmm. still some kind of um, wriggling human behavior that's not quite yeah. set in stone. So what we looked at was a few different pillars, the future of wellness, which we called life well-being. We looked at the future of the metaverse. Uh, we looked at the future of inclusivity and diversity and what that looks like. We study the future of work, the future of travel, the future of retail, and then a trend called the post-growth paradigm, which essentially you can kind of coin that as the future of consumption. So it's a really big report that you can see covers a lot of ground, Um, but the findings are very much um, analyzed through the lens of Gen Z and millennials, so so young people and how they'll behave, shop, game, eat uh, in the future. Well, let's let's tap into a couple. Let's go let's go down deep into a couple of them. First of all, this this meta universe that uh, is the new the new tagline I've been hearing uh, quite a bit of. So, you know, my ver- version of a meta universe was was old school kind of you know these places where people would gather with cheesy looking emoticons, but it's so much more. So, talk about the meta universe and how how it's uh, impacting trends and, and society. The metaverse is really interesting because I think it's kind of the topic du jour at the moment, but it really defies definition because it doesn't exactly exist yet. And when I say that it doesn't exist, it means that it is, if you compare it to, if it has a comparison, think of the internet before it was fully built, you know, internet 1.0. It's almost, it was, it's almost a, a tautology. The metaverse doesn't really exist, so it's hard to talk about it. But it yes. does exist. But it doesn't exist. Eh? It's hard to get, it's like you know, trying to I get know, your, and people want to understand it, but there's nothing yeah. to point towards as an exact reference. So I think yeah, this yeah. is where we have to um, know that we're in a test and learn phase and where mm. the industry is growing and innovating and iterating all at once. So think about it as in like building a plane as it's taking off. That's the metaverse. Um, but it, we, reminds, it reminds me a little bit. Some of it reminds me of that. I was trying to think of it early in the conversation. Second Life. Do you remember Second Life? Yes, when yes, the, yes, the, yes. Old school. I remember I built a store with a partner in Second Life and everybody goes, that's it. Nobody's going to shop in a shopping mall anymore. They're going to wander through here. And I'm like, yeah, I don't think so, but okay. Um, you know, that was kind of <laughs> Yeah, it's, very it's like an early iteration for mm-hmm. sure. Yeah, no, but yeah, the metaverse yeah. is 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 a third space, a digital realm that you can think of as being its own digital economy. We will work there, we will play there, we will learn there, 
Um, it's hard to say that we'll do other sensory things like eat or smell, but then you mm. see technologies like uh, the electronic nose innovation that's coming through, this idea that you can use electricity to trigger smell. And you wonder, like, can I smell the new fragrance by my favorite brand or can mm. I smell this new menu item from a restaurant I love in the metaverse in the future? So, again, these things are bubbling up but don't exist yet. So, this new digital realm will have its own currencies, again, driven by the blockchain and specific cryptocurrencies that operate throughout that. And the world will become more seamless to where we'll have one avatar, one identity, one wallet, and be able to kind of move between these realms seamlessly uh, with a con- sense of continuity. So there will always be this world that evolves. It doesn't stop and start when you exit. It will live and breathe um, as you kind of go about the rest of your f- physical life but when you revisit it it will kind of pick up um from real time and so that's kind of i think another step change people aren't used to this idea that yeah you can play a video game and when you stop or pause it it pauses but the metaverse doesn't have a pause button because it is a real Hmm. real realm it it does have increasingly regulators and actors big picture actors i mean you think of nation states who are clamping down on cryptocurrency some would say rightly so, as it's become in some ways the currency of crime. So how do you, how do you account for those kind of, I don't, I don't even want to call them exogenous shocks, but they are realities that there's governments and other stakeholders that, that can kind of put a, a broomstick in the bicycle wheel spoke of a, of a forecast mm. or a trend, yeah? Yeah, and I think legislation is a bit behind um, in terms of keeping up. This, the rate of an acceleration of change mm-hmm. in this space is moving so quickly that, you know, even only this year, questions around, I think, the taxing of Bitcoin yeah. as income was, you know, something they had to address. So it's like they're in a place of reaction rather than being proactive about setting up the regulation, like I said, because it doesn't exist. It's really hard to kind of control and, and mm-hmm. monitor. Mm-hmm. Um, but for most of the backlash, there's no stopping this force of change. I mean, there's some currencies, uh, some countries that are ex- in exchanging crypto is the kind of a key currency you've got miami i think that one is the first cities to create the miami coin mm. um so it is picking up on a more kind of social physical level as well but the upward trend of crypto isn't even around the, these alternative coins it's really what the decentralized web and blockchain right. technology can do for people and and like i said before the fact that people crave transparency, traceability, ownership, mm. sovereignty, that that technology and tool gives them that. So whatever kind of backlash and re- legislation comes around that, we'll have to kind of watch this space a little bit, but this kind of trend will, will continue into the future um, as a reaction to people building what they want and having more peer-powered in, in a place where they don't trust huge institutions where with their money mm. or political parties with their, with their vote. So in your framework, cryptocurrency is an outcome of a broader trend, in other words. It's, it's not a trend in and of itself. It's that outcome of that decentralization and all that kind of stuff. Exactly, right? which is that, right. it's, it's interesting because if you look at the mechanics of the decentralized web or the blockchain, it's, it's interesting that it mirrors to a certain degree um, mycelium networks, which are the most oldest organism, fungi, that have existed on this planet for millions and millions of years. So 
the fact that blockchain technology is decentralized, doesn't have a centralized source of power like mycelium and fungi. It's, it's mm. quite fascinating that we're developing and, and making and creating these tools, but it's actually mirroring something so natural to us mm. and natural to this planet um, <laughs> that it's almost like the secret and the, the answer was always there. We're only now learning that this is something that we need. Uh, Metaverse is organic is what you're saying. There you go. There's, yeah. there's, there's a blog post for you. I love it. Title for you. All right. Well, let's spend the, 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 the balance of time we have left. Let's talk about business. Uh, you know, my audience is made up uh, by and large of uh, business uh, leaders or students or participants, and of course, even more so in the retail space. So give us a, a few top notes about what you have to say about the future of retail. Yeah, retail is really interesting because I think we've all been very focused and, and rightly so on the e-commerce um, revolution this year. But in 2024, there will be quite a, a strong resurgence to physical retail. And in terms of what that looks like, it's when we think we have to think about it in its um, embeddedness to other trends and, and drivers of change. So one of that, frankly, is off the back of what the future city looks like. And that's really important to take into consideration because it impacts retail hugely. So with post-COVID change and obviously the intersection of uh, the climate agenda being top of mind for policymakers and, and urban developers, mm. the city it will turn into a 15-minute city. So the idea that you live, work, shop, eat, mm. play within 15 minutes of one location will become a really central factor. And that's going to challenge retailers to develop yeah. Um, or integrate into mixed-used retail destinations and spaces. So we're seeing that come to play. I think Paris is really leading the way mm. in terms of what that looks like. And so within the report, we're kind of calling out places like Le Samaritan, which was reopened um, in 2021 this year, and it mixes its department store, it's got a hotel in it, um, a co-working space, but also public housing. So these retail residencies are a big part of what we're seeing for the future. Even John Lewis is actually building its own residential retail hubs as well that people will be able to rent furnished with their furniture too, which is an interesting way of a retailer kind of integrating into the, these worlds. So again, this big resurgence to physical world, but what does that mean for shopping malls and shopping destinations a bit more on the fringe of cities, it means that we're going to see really interesting use cases of bringing in some of those priorities for young people into those spaces. So a really great example um, I'll point you towards is a company, an esports company called Belong Gaming Arenas. Mm -hmm. So they announced in, in June that they're going to roll out 500 locations in malls and shopping centers across the U.S. over the next five years. So they're reclaiming that space that traditionally Gen Z used to go to the mall and hang out, but now what do they do? They're gaming. So this esports company is kind of taking back that real estate and creating these esports arenas as a place for people to commune and converge and connect and have that experience. And no doubt there'll be retail kind of additions and add-ons to that. So it's really about this resurgence of spaces in alignment with what young people value and need in the new ways that will live and operate in cities. Mm -hmm. And I guess, you know, it's interesting because we talk about one thing driving another. What, what I've been thinking about a lot as one of these um, long-term impacts of the COVID era is the work from home movement mm -hmm. uh, or work from anywhere movement. It's not like the technology didn't exist before, but it seems there's been a, a cultural shift and that enables this 15-minute city idea where many of us can now shop and live 
without this uh, long commute. It it does say interesting things about downtowns and how to keep them vibrant. So, um, and of course, where retailers locate and what mm. they locate and how they locate. Pretty interesting stuff. Right? And, and the future of the office too, because you think about it, a lot of yeah. people are giving up that that real estate and that mm-hmm. those big uh, leases they've had for their their corporations and. There will be, it's funny because we kind of spoke about the death of co-working spaces a few years ago only for COVID Mm. to really challenge that and (laughs) reignite the need for those because people can work from home and will want to have that split, but they'll need physical places to um, connect with their colleagues. So there's some interesting initiatives coming out with retailers creating um, co-working spaces aside. I'm not sure if you saw. Yes, Yes, Saxworks, really great great case study. Mm-hmm. Um, well, even companies actually, a small initiative, but giving employees or paying or picking up the check for when they have a meal with their colleague, you know, those kind mm-hmm. of initiatives to get people meeting again, yeah. um, they're going to need that physical place to do that. Well, it's interesting because the smart money is going in both directions, right? In your former hometown of New York City, Google just paid, what, $2.1 or $2.4 billion for a big physical space in Hudson Yards. Yeah. So it's it's interesting, right? It's going in a couple of directions. I'm not sure. I think big companies like that are hedging their bets in both directions. Um, you know, yeah, who knows I mean, there's a, there's a business case for both too, right? Because yeah, you yeah. think about it, like all we do is touch flat 2D surfaces all day mm-hmm. and scrolling yeah. is is becoming kind of a tiresome experience. So I think yeah. there'll still be that discovery stage online and on social, but there'll be a drive to kind of have that ease to physically pick it up. Mm-hmm. No one wants to bother with returns. Everyone's got return fatigue of that, that very mm-hmm. unseamless experience of what it is to return something. So I think people still mm-hmm. want some convenience and ease that comes with a f- physical element too. Well, usually in, I end these podcasts by saying, well, who knows the future? Well, I would say you guys got a pretty good grip on it. <laughs> it's a great report. Uh, tell, tell us about where uh, get in touch with you and, and go find uh, your report. Yeah, you can find the report on soonfutures.com. Otherwise, our Instagram at soonfutures has a daily signals of change if you just want some constant um, feed of inspiration going forward. Well, fantastic. Well, um, thanks for joining me on the on the Voice of Retail. Uh, great to talk about the future here and here in the present. I uh, wish you and the team much continued success, and and uh, encourage everybody to go check out the report. It's really fun. It's really interesting, thought provoking. Uh, so, thanks again for joining me on the Voice of Retail. Thanks so much for having me, Michael. Thanks for tuning in to today's episode of the Voice of Retail. Be sure and follow the podcast on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you enjoy podcasts so you don't miss out on the latest episodes, industry news, and insights. If you enjoyed this episode, please consider leaving a rating review as it really helps us grow so that we continue to get amazing guests onto the show. I'm your host, Michael LeBlanc, president of Emmy LeBlanc Company, Inc. And if you're looking for more content or want to chat, follow me on LinkedIn or visit my website at emmyleblanc.co. Until next time, stay safe, have a great week.